0: Hello, and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel journalist and editor. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Today, I'm joined by one of the world's most influential and multi-award-winning travel writers, the global editor-in-chief of Condé Nast Traveller, UK and US, Melinda Stevens. Melinda is a trendsetter, a tastemaker, and considered by many to be travel royalty. After beginning her writing career at Vogue magazine, Melinda went on to become a columnist for the Sunday Times and Evening Standard and the travel editor at Tatler before taking the helm at Condé Nast Traveller. Reading Condé Nast Traveller, the way the writers would transport me to far-flung places with the power of their words, was part of my inspiration for becoming a travel writer. So heading to its offices in the heart of London's Mayfair, where the walls were lined with its iconic covers, was really thrilling. Unsurprisingly, Melinda has her finger on the pulse of the hottest destinations, which we of course discuss, as well as reflecting on some of the all-time greats and she gives a real insight into the makings of a top magazine. So let's hear from Melinda Stevens. This is Wanderlust Guaranteed. Melinda Stevens, welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for being here. How are you?
1: Very well indeed, thank you.
0: I am so excited because I'm in the... Holy Grail of travel magazine offices at Condé Nast Traveler. Um, in your office, so tell me, I am seeing a lot of post-it notes on the wall and postcards lined up. Tell me what what is it that I am looking at here?
1: I should have really tidied before you came. I've just I'm seeing it through your eyes and the pot plants and the pterodactyls and the mirrors and the photographs and the books and the bags and these are the mini boards where the where the magazine kind of takes shape. That's the UK edition. And then behind me, you'll see the US edition. And then my new collection of m- mushrooms, which I'm too nervous to take home to my husband. Oh, I haven't they're, noticed they're, these. <laughs> they're fossilized mushrooms that I felt passionately in love with. Brilliant. So they're adding to the chaos.
0: Well, we are going to go on a journey through your life's travel diaries. And I can't wait to kick off. Chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. What would that be?
1: Funnily enough... Frinton on Sea, where I had a wonderful aunt and uncle, who used to take me every summer. And this would have been the kind of late seventies, when we all used to wear kind of towelling shorts mm-hmm. and little kind of string vests. And uh, it was always raining, and or there was a kind of high wind, and you'd be eating a kind of sandy sandwich. And my cousins were all great sportswomen and tennis players mm-hmm. and we would have to do tennis camp and I had very buck teeth and, um, and I was always put, you know, kind of partnered up with someone who was inevitably much better than I was and I found it mm. all aw- wildly awkward. <laughs> um, but I think those summers, those English summers... Um, when you do those um, family photographs where you all line up from the smallest child up to the biggest and you're mm-hmm. all kind of jostling into one another. Mm-hmm. Those are my earliest travel memories, funnily enough. So where actually is Freton-on-Sea? Essex. Oh, Essex. And funnily enough, I haven't been back to Essex since since those days. And I probably stopped going when I was about 11.
0: There's beautiful coastline there.
1: Amazing, amazing. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of what we do at Condé Travel. Traveler, or one of the things that gives me most pleasure in Condé Travel Traveler is um, a regular feature we do, which is called staycation. Mm-hmm. Because I think a lot of us have the opinion that in order to travel or in order to experience the world, you have to get on a plane and go to another continent. And that's just not true. And... Um, I started out not knowing a huge amount about what we have on our own shores. Um, But the places that we focus in on every month are just amazing. They're amazing independent hoteliers doing wonderful things in wonderful places Mm. um, around the country. And it's very invigorating to know that that's happening.
0: Yeah. And which stand out to you? Do you have any particular British favorites?
1: I went to um, the Long Mind in Shropshire recently. Uh-huh. Um, one of my best friend lives up there and Shropshire itself is just stunning. You get out of that kind of the flat landscaping of the south and suddenly you're in these rolling hills uh, with villages that are kind of very, you know, far from each other. And it's just much more wild. Anyway, we went for a drive and we went for this high. It felt like we were going kind of higher and higher up into the clouds. And it was a beautiful, beautiful summer's day. And We started off on this walk wild. It's kind of heathery and moorlandy and muddy ponies. And, you know, we were stopping and looking for birds nesting and stuff. And I'm a lazy, lazy person. (laughs) Um, But this walk was just... um, it just completely opened up my eyes to different parts of England. And I think that keeps happening to me. And the big sky of it was extraordinary. I felt like I was in a kind of snow globe of sky. And then we did this, lots and lots of children tumbling about and dogs. Um, it was quite like that children's story, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to get to it, you know, swishy swashy. We were through the grass and through that, and then through the river. And then we meandered down the hill and ended up in a, a very sweet pub in Church Stretton and ate cheese and cheese and onion crisps and sort of vinegar crisps and pints of cider.
0: Uh, was travel important to you growing up? Uh, yes. Did you have the Wanderlust from an early
1: age? My father and stepmother and mother actually are all big travellers, but I think it was um, my father and stepmother really who would always go on extraordinary adventures, Safari in Africa and, and you know, and not staying in Swanky Hotels, we'd be staying in in, you know, under Tarpaulin with all of those noises in the night. And and around the Aegean and the Mediterranean and those shorelines and that colour of the sea. And I think I just always felt that when I was traveling, I was the most of myself. But that really came to fruition when I was 18. And I, I'm literally never letting my children travel in the way that I do because my friend Joanna Weinberg and I left school. We thought that we had bought tickets to India. We ended up in Indonesia (laughs) and we had like $200 in our pocket for like six months. Uh, We didn't even know where we were spending the first night. And, you know, and we were pretty closeted kids. We went to a tiny, tiny boarding school in a tiny, tiny village in Wiltshire, which had a tiny, tiny sausage factory in it and nothing else. And then we were on and then we hired motorbikes. And threw away all our clothes and set off around Bali. Had wow. a, had a motor, have a motor, motorbike accident on like day three. Oh She's goodness. still got Honda burned into her leg, and um, and we proceeded yeah. to have the most extraordinary adventure of our lives. But I mean, we were eighteen and didn't know our left from our right. So, wow. but travel was that. That's when I started to feel that I I felt almost like. My body was changing. My my the comfortableness of my body in the landscape was shifting, that, so that I felt more at ease than I had ever felt. And I think that continues to happen. I I, I do need to be on the move. Mm.
0: Well, that leads me on to chapter two, which is the first place you fell
1: in love with. What would that be? So that would have been Bali. Mm, I wondered. Thirty years ago, it was. I mean, there was just. Very little.
0: Uh, Have you been back
1: since? Yes.
0: So what was it like then versus now?
1: Oh, it was, you know, wild. And we got, you know, on that first or second day or third day, we got, after that motorcycle accident, actually, and we got lost in this village. And there was, you know, there were no cars and there was no one driving around. And, you know, we were hurt. And this, this sweet family came out from from, I don't know, from behind the trees and we couldn't speak their language and they couldn't speak ours and we were trying to communicate with each other and they started laughing and we started laughing and then they got huge giggles and we got tremendous giggles and then I just remember looking around and us being surrounded by this this kind of green corp- cornucopia of, of jungle and wildness and just our laughter ringing, ringing, ringing around it and we ended up spending that night in that village and and uh, we, we never said a word to each other. It was just through laughter and I, I think from then on in we, we ended up going to a cockfight in the middle of the jungle. In the in the middle of a rainstorm, and cockfights even at that point were illegal, so you had to drive into the middle of the jungle to do it, and mm-hmm. and it was just us—we were the only two girls—and then I think hundreds of of local guys, and these, and and then that, then the rain starting, and then that being so dramatic, and then we went, we travelled across from Lombok to Sumbha, Sumbawa and then we we um, we picked up on a kind of fisherman's boat, and and. We travelled back through the islands. I was suddenly remembering there was a hammock, and but one night the tarpaulin over us bust and the rain came in and we were just soaked. God, we stank, we stank, we stank for months. But in the meantime, I've never seen, and I've never seen since, actually, sunrises or sunsets like they were at that time Mm. so that's when I uh, and that's when I got the proper bug and then again for me that's what traveling was all about it wasn't about having very much money it was a rucksack not much of a plan but those are the trips I love the Mm. most the meandering ones with no plan
0: Mm. so when you travel now do you have a a clear itinerary always in place or do you like to go with the flow
1: do you know recently I've done a couple of road trips with my own kids and they've had a certain itinerary to them but of course the open road throws up so much that's unexpected and i think the first one we went on my daughter was my little one was only about 2 and we just tumbled around in this rv this was kind of through the northwestern states of america a firm kind of my brother lives in seattle and then we went kind of through washington to idaho and then Wyoming and Montana and mm, um, beautiful wide open spaces. oh wide open spaces such wide open spaces and then the second trip we did started in Sun Valley I think and then we went to kind of Utah and Arizona and across to Colorado down to New Mexico and I just America never ceases to amaze me in its kind of undulating wilderness the, the wonderland that it is, the, 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 the geology of the place is just extraordinary.
0: So extraordinary and yet I feel that sometimes people don't realise quite how varied and extraordinarily varied the landscape is just from one state to another.
1: Totally. I think a large part of what I try and do it through the magazine is to try and and show that as well that n- that the world is an extraordinary um, place that's that's wild and wonderful and unknown because I think there's so much that's scary and spooky in the world right now but mm. I feel that my responsibility is to show to show readers. That it's also, um, I want them to be delighted and I want them to be surprised, and part of that is exactly what you're saying. It's like, I want, where is that place? Like when we did a piece on the Danakil Depression in in Ethiopia, where it's it's so low that the kind of Earth's magma lava bubbles up from under it, and the photographer was sending me these alarming <laughs> pictures of his phone exploding and. And that same photographer actually did an amazing piece in the in the deserts of Sudan. This month we've got a long feature on Kazakhstan, and again you're just like I just these mountains, these vistas, this epicness, this scope. um, Look at this look at this wonderful place and let's um, and let it relish exists. it. It still exists and I, and I think it should be about wonder and I think it should be about respect. Mm,
0: absolutely. So you've said that you fell in love with Condé Nast Traveller at first sight <laughs> and you spent your next year's grafting at the Sunday Times, Tatler and the
1: Evening Standard in order to get your dream job. It's a, it's a slight I, um I started as a travel editor at... Tatler however many years ago and I had, and at that point I'd worked at Tatler on and off for years and I'd worked for the Sunday Times and the Evening Standard on and off for years and then this job came up and I was at, at home and I was at stay-at-home mum and i just had a baby and, and I was blending food and making my own hummus and writing a really depressing novel and this job came up as a travel editor at Tatler and I thought oh that's a bit extreme but let's give it a shot and I and on the first day someone said what should we do I'm, I'll never forget what should we do with this story with Marrakesh and I remember tears coming down my eyes and going oh my god this is what I want to do and on the second day I worked out that therefore I wanted to be the editor of Condé Nast Traveler because it was the best travel meet, magazine that there was and I'd found my groove and then when you got this job what was it
0: what was it like walking into somewhere that you'd had kind of on that
1: pedestal I was so spooked I'd gone to I was very calm about I remember Nicholas Coleridge telling me that I got the job and I thought god please, you mustn't be like an x-factor Hyster- hysterical <laughs> woman you know and in fact when he told me i was very very calm and i felt very very settled and that was very resonant to me anyway before i actually started the job I, I i went to try and get a you know something to wear for the first day and then i had a i had a panic attack in westfield and my husband had to take the children home whilst i tried to collect my breath in the changing room of Zara and then I came in here when I was a mixture of very nervous and very confident as you are as you have to be I don't know Mm. but I work with the most amazing people and we it's not that it's not challenging it's really challenging but I think we all love delivering the best pictures and the best words Mm -hmm. to our readers and what makes a destination magazine worthy I've slightly pivoted recently in the sense that I think as journalists, you're part traveller, you know, I'm part traveller and I'm part journalist and part, the, you know, the directive of a journalist is to find that something that's new or emerging. Mm-hmm. But I have found that recently to slightly jar as I, as I travel the world and I go to, you know, far out deserts and tiny European cities, there are just so many of us travelling right now that I feel really a responsibility to not just champion the new and to try and make sure that we're not just doing the same cookie-cutter coffee shop is turning up everywhere from east to west. So at the moment we're actually championing places that are resolutely themselves. I'm also
0: really curious to know how you work out what goes on your iconic covers
1: What's the kind of process for that? Oh, it's such a sweat. We're in, the, we're in the middle of sweating about one now. And you want it to be arresting and startling and it's very easy in travel to become cheesy and cliched. So we we have these cover meetings every month. You choose a cover and then you take them down and I go and see my boss and I go and see the head of circulation and we go with my publisher and my art director and we all look at this cover. But this funny thing happens to me is every when I go down in the lift and i'm about to go into his office i can see it in a different i'm seeing it in a different way so we would have spent weeks working on this cover tweaking the tiny the word goes here and you move that here and you should change the color of the you know and then i and then i can see it fresh and i had a moment yesterday and i was like oh i just i don't know if this is it anyway and they were circumspect too so now we're <clears throat> we're back at not square one but we're experimenting with some others like you know, it 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 drives everyone mad. But I don't believe I the, the magazine always has to come first, and I always have to do the best that we can do.
0: But how do you how do you hone in on an image? I mean, what is the process in itself?
1: So um, we try to go for something that is something that is that you haven't seen before. Yeah, something that's a it's also arresting. Yes. But again, as I say it's it's the hardest bit, and it's the sweatiest bit and it's the I'm judged as an editor by in the u k how well I sell at newsstand and at newsstand it's pretty much it doesn't matter what's inside people are either taken by that cover or not mm, so it's a lot of pressure you know one of the the best selling cover we did practically of all time is a completely black cover, practically black, but with a tiny tiny Door into a uh, and also rather black black um it was in a Riad in Morocco I remember it, yeah and um so that and that definitely didn't th- didn't obey anyone's rules about, oh, it must be blue, it must be shiny, I must want to be there, it has to be light and bright, and so sometimes it's the one, but then again, you can't just you know you can't become stuck on doing something left field in the hope that you can't disappear up your own hmm.
0: <laughs> so um chapter three then is the place where you learned the most about yourself. Where would
1: that be? I think probably the most I've learned about myself is is being with my children on trips mm-hmm. and you have three kids I have three girls three girls lovely and sometimes my beloved gorgeous husband, for example, obviously he's, he's on these road trips with us but he gets so mad with the mess in our RV and the chaos that we, we carry around us. But I have to say, when I'm with my girls and when we're on the move in that kind of way, I feel very whole. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do
0: is second-guess the ring. even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cosy retreat for fellow travellers? airbnb.co.uk forward slash host thank you to airbnb for supporting the travel diaries how is traveling with children compared to what before you didn't
1: have children it's not so different for me i mean i used to stay as i in tiny places that cost like ten dollars a night now little a-frame huts on a you know a beach in Tioman in malaysia or you know tiny little tree houses in in Tulum that cost you know nothing with with the children you have to make sure that there's space you know there's basic stuff in situ but on the other hand I don't we have lots of nice things and lots of nice pleasures in life and I am very keen to show them that's not Everything that it's important to get rootsy and it's important to get down and dirty. And what, why I love traveling with them is because we leave, I make this stupid rule every time that's no tech. And then the children are really good at it and they throw away their, you know, they're just like, that's fine, that's fine. And then I'm the one that's in a wild panic trying to edit a magazine from the (laughs) middle of freaking Mumbai or something or racing across some desert wherever it is desperately trying to find wi-fi so i can send something to press but but actually i love traveling with them because i can see the through their eyes and i can see them settle and i can see them um catch on to a different rhythm and that gives me tremendous pleasure
0: chapter four i feel is maybe the biggest question of all Mm. which is your all-time favorite destination gosh I've got so many.
1: Um, I fell in love with Charleston recently.
0: What did you love about Charleston?
1: The people, actually. They just have a wicked sense of humour. It's always down to the people, actually. The Bahamas, where I spent a lot of time when I was little. My parents had a house there. And I love the Bahamians. India, I didn't go till till, till I was older. And then I was just blown away as everyone is everyone is just all involved in India but again it's the Indians because they're so incredibly funny
0: when you first went to India where was it in India that you loved in particular
1: um so funnily enough actually the first place I went to in India was Kerala when I was younger and Kerala just you know lulled me into its beautiful kind of swaying palms and Rice boats and backwaters, and that was gorgeous. But it was later when I went to Rajasthan that I was just—I um, felt my—I felt my kind of pupils dilating. And funny enough, I—I I took my children. I can when my husband hadn't been, and I was so excited to show them. And on the first drive, we'd you know had a long plane plane ride, and then I think we were driving like six hours to Udapur or Jaipur, and I my. Daughter and I, my middle daughter, she just stretched her arms above her head and she said, oh, Mama. She was just looking outside of the window and the cows on the kale. So she said, oh, Mama, I feel so alive. Mm. And I think it's just, it's so vigorous.
0: Mm. And how about your favourite hotel? Do you have a favourite?
1: Oh, it's, um, so many. So many at different times in different places. I remember going as a child to the Cala de Volpi in Sardinia. Mm. and a waiter showing us how to peel a peach in one piece and kind of cutting off the bottom in a very slither-like fashion and then massaging the that kind of fuzzy skin off the top of it and that feeling like magic. Um, nowadays I've had lots of fun times at Amelia in the Maldives. I have a very wide family in a very multi-generational family in a very party loving family. Mm-hmm. And my nieces and I and my kids and tons of friends of us have spent a lot of time at Amila. Um so I always think of it so fondly. Uh, Ascensio in Mexico um is such a is such a happy place for me. It used to be owned by it was a house owned by a kind of Italian principessa and has now been taken over by a lovely man and has the most beautiful stretch of beach
0: where in mexico is it
1: it's just down the road from tulum and tulum is a place that i know gets a very bad rap nowadays and i think probably you if you go at christmas and new year it is probably teeming with teeming with too many people but i first went many decades ago and um and did nothing but kind of lie in a hammock and eat coconuts and swim in the sea. And then I took my uh, my family and we lived in a little treehouse. And we had a, she was called the butler, which is hilarious because she was like 19 and had a very, very tiny skirt and a machete. And <laughs> uh, she didn't, uh, she didn't do an enormous amount but we didn't really need her to because you just bring fresh mango every day in a bottle of tequila and that <laughs> that's was you needed. that was the alpha and omega of her duties <laughs> um but essencia funnily enough is further down the road and it's, it's more on its own and it's more considered um but that's that always brings about special memories and then i probably have not one but two favorite hotels in in paris uh the bristol i stay in for most Paris fashion weeks and I just the staff there are so remarkable and it smells delicious Mm. sometimes the best hotels I think are more than the sum of their parts at the Mercer in New York a a lot of Andre Bellage's hotels actually I think if you if you break them down they don't it doesn't really all make sense but somehow the ones... And if you break the Bristol down, it doesn't really make sense. You walk straight into a kind of very strange kind of arched room, but it's kind of arched the wrong way. And yet it has charisma. Mm-hmm. And then the other one in the city that I love so much is La Reserve, which is in an old building. It's very sumptuously done. It's like someone's private house, and um, but it's very Decadent and joyful, and between those two places during Paris, we always have lots of family, lots of friends, and lots of very beautiful Parisian times. Lots of happy memories, mm, yes, indeed. So, chapter five
0: is your hidden gem. What would that be?
1: I don't know what's happened to this island in Honduras. I lived in a little um, it was like a house on stilts, and and there's a room that was at the bottom of the house on stilts. It was a, it was the kind of normally for the person who looked after the pigs. So you was I was surrounded by by pigs and piglets, and I was in this kind of very sparse white room, and the only thing in this room was a huge anthology. It was like the complete work of Dickens, and the complete work of Dickens is sizable tome by anyone's standards
0: I love that that you're in the middle of Central America and there's a tome of Dickens
1: yes very um it reminded me very much of Evening Wars A Handful of Dust which is exactly what happens to the to the kind of hero and that the protagonist in that story and I and there would be vast cockroaches wandering around at night and I would whack them with this book of Dickens but it also I had like amazing adventures like met up with all sorts of people and went night diving for the first time which was astonishing and I remember falling wild in love with an octopus mm-hmm. um, which mm-hmm. disappeared through the rocks like mercury and changed into a million colors and I've I'd never seen anything so astonishing I don't know what's happened to the island now I pray it's not covered in hotels with infinity pools Mm. Well, speaking of which,
0: then um, I wondered: when it comes to hidden gems, are you sometimes a bit loath to promote them in the magazine if they're someone that you think is particularly kind of
1: yes. special or dear to you? I do. I used to feel about two years ago. I thought it was my responsibility to tell everyone about my hidden gem. Mm-hmm. Now I feel that um, th- some things need to be sacred, and I also feel that. The places that we should be visiting now are the ones that haven't been fiddled with by people like me and haven't been muddled with and haven't been all over Instagram and aren't covered in Airbnbs. So I feel like what's sh- where we should go and what we should be doing henceforth is probably the completely random cities whose names you can't pronounce that are resolutely themselves. Mm.
0: And are there any destinations that you're tipping? as the next big thing, conversely, um, for next year?
1: Well, I just read actually a proof on Belgrade. Uh, and actually it was a rather lovely tale by a girl who'd gone there to report on the on the war many years ago and then she ended up falling in love with the Serbian and they got married. And I think Belgrade is, um, you know, lots of those Balkan capitals have kind of galvanize themselves and their kind of design vigor and their craftsmanship and stuff but what I really liked about this story is we kind of wholeheartedly drilled down on the bits that were still very Soviet Mm -hmm. and and it's unfashionable furniture and it's unfashionable hotel rooms and it's unfashionable um aesthetic um because that's and it's and it's kind of strange marmalade, marmalade light I felt that we shouldn't always be trying to pluck all these pretty things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We should be going a bit deeper.
0: Yeah. And Chapter 6 is the place that you'd never go back to. Is there a place that you
1: remember for the wrong reasons? It's funny that um, in a way it was kind of a classic worst of times best of times in the sense that I would never go back nor could you ever go back but it, because it was kind of Soviet Russia pre glasnost and despite the fact that I'm, I'm I'm poking fun at my tiny tiny boarding school they took us on a very progressive trip to Russia when we were 17 and I remember flying over Russia and looking out the window. I mean, I'm obsessed by looking out the plane windows at all times. I'm always astonished. Always getting a window seat? Yes, always. I pretend it's got something to do with my, my sore neck. But <laughs> actually, it's because I'm being greedy and I want to suck up. I want to suck up the view. Um, and I remember flying over Russia and just being amazed. And then, you know, we landed and... We stayed in kind of, you know, state-sanctioned hotels. I remember we had meatballs for breakfast, lunch, and supper. And we'd wander the streets, these huge, wide, open streets where, with people still queuing for bread. And we, we took barrows. I mean, literally, we took barrows to swap for, you know, rabbit hats. And... Um, and then we would sneak out at night to meet up with all these boys who lived in these tiny houses who had learnt English. It sounds like I'm making this up now. They'd learnt English by listening to a kind of black market Frank Sinatra records. So they talked in very strange vernaculars and, wow. uh, and it was mesmerised. We were mesmerised by each other. So I, I literally couldn't go back there and wouldn't be able to go back there because I don't think it exists anymore. Mm, fantastic. So then chapter seven is your next big
0: adventure
1: what's next on the cards i'm going to um egypt with my stepmother my stepmother is a very generous host and she takes my stepbrother and stepsister and i and our many many children on these on these grand and brilliant and proper trips so egypt i think will be something spectacular where and in then,
0: egypt are you traveling
1: all over yeah i'm slightly nervous about the profusion of ruins and the age of the offspring (laughs) but i but you know i used to do this as a child and i don't remember necessarily ephesus and i don't necessarily actually i do remember leptis magna i remember feeling leptis magna very much as i could feel the the living city of it uh, which was rather amazing but but I, but, you, but they'll remember something else they'll remember the smell of the stone or they'll remember the meander of the Nile they won't remember mm. the history but mm. it all you know silts down and settles upon us and, and feeds us so, so we'll see how that goes and then I'm also I'm mad about trains one of my favourite journeys is is leaving London at night and taking the sleeper to Scotland and I'm um, I told my children that we were taking the sleeper to Scotland, and one of them burst into tears. She was just <laughs> couldn't get over such a thing. And then we arrived at the train station. It was nine, and they were so tired, and they were a little errand. And there was a per, he looked like kind of Toad of to- Toad Hall, and he was wearing a kind of tweed three piece suit. And he was so smart and mm-hmm. glamorous. Mm-hmm. And we got on the train and we, you know, got into our position and they couldn't get over the beds that lever up, or, uh, up and down. Yeah. And I was, I'm obsessed by the sheets. They're like, they're kind of dry as biscuits and yet somehow there's nothing more nourishing. And then beautiful Toad of Toad Hall said, and what would you want for breakfast? For, you know, tea or coffee and kind of cake. And we all were just we're so excited and then you just go to sleep in that rattle and rattle of the train and then however many hours you wake up in that unbelievably cold, crisp dawn but pre-dawn so it's still dark and you're in a tiny, tiny station in the middle of nowhere and we have friends that we stay with and they've always left a Land Rover, which is kind of missing seats and brakes and windows and we climb into the Land Rover and then bush and, and then you're driving and you're driving through the through the highlands and the glory, and and everyone is shocked awake oh, in the that best possible magnificent.
0: way. magnificent. Do you do you see train travel as being yes a major? Uh, travel a major train major for, next,
1: for the future. Completely, I think what Belmont do with their trains. I think what we just did a piece about Amtrak uh, from New York, a journey from New York to San Francisco. I think trains will become a big part of our conversation going forward, and I'm mm. thrilled about it because that's not just from a from a protecting the climate point of view, but it, they're an extraordinary way to see the world as it literally shoots past you. Uh, but and yes, and then combined with that, um, how much more respectful they are of the earth?
0: Mm, absolutely can't believe we're on to chapter eight then and that is what's at the top
1: of your travel wish list japan Mm -hmm. i've never been to japan
0: oh wow
1: sometimes i lie because there'll be people who come in for a meeting and they'll talk about somewhere that's very well known and well trodden and i haven't been there and i pretend that i have it's awful and and i i do that in life i remember having an interview for a job and there was a woman who said that she had a kind of an old editor, and she said she had a a a Rottweiler, a certain type of dog, and I pretended that I did too. I don't know why I think this (laughs) would ingratiate me with people. But um, I'm trying to stop lying, and I'm trying to actually go to Japan rather than fibbing about it. And I remember my niece saying to me that she remembers one particular. She said, the baths run so slowly there. And she said, there's something about the slowness of the filling of the bath and the slowness of the pouring of the tea. She said, it's just, you know, brings everything down and the temperature just, when the temperature in your system just drops. And of course, it's a, you know, many parts of it, huge, thriving metropolises. But I've longed to get out to the Cans and the countryside and mm. for that respect for ritual, I, I long to witness that.
0: Mm. Fantastic. Well, Melinda Stevens, those were your travel diaries. What a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Well, that was Melinda Stevens, the editor-in-chief of Condé Nast Traveller magazine here in the UK and in the US. The magazine is, of course, available in all good news agents and is a fabulous read. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, then please hit subscribe and leave a review. And I'd love to hear from you. You can also find me on Instagram at Holly Rubenstein. All that's left to say is thank you so much for listening and I'll speak to you next time. all over the world thanks to airbnb it's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travelers just like i do whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room It's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host.